In the summer of 1988, I was a roofer. I belonged to a roofing crew. That particular summer, I was the one college student that was a part of the roofing crew, so they gave me all the tarring jobs. So I'd get a bucket of slop and a broom. And, and by lunchtime, my shoes were all black, my jeans were black. When I would shower at night, black ooze would just, would just baked in the sun. Because every day that summer, the summer of 1988, the last year of Ronald Reagan's presidency, that was a hot summer. It was 98 degrees, 99 degrees every day. And you know what? I couldn't go out to eat in a restaurant because by the time I hit lunch, I had sweated through all my clothes and I was just black ooze everywhere. I was the blues black ooze monster. And so my pastor, a Baptist pastor, Pastor Raymond, would meet me in one of the parks for lunch. And he would bring a bag lunch and I would eat with Raymond once or twice a week in a full suit, full tie. His peanut butter and banana sandwich had melted in the heat and we were battling bees because the bees loved his honey and (laughs) peanut butter and banana sandwiches. And he did that. Raymond, Raymond was incarnational, okay? Parents, you know this, when you've got a little kid and they're a toddler, they're a preschooler, and you snuggle in their bed at night and you read them a story, and you're, you're kind of entering their world. Or uh, when you're down on the floor playing and it's Legos or blocks or dolls or whatever it is, when parents do that, parents are being incarnational. Uh, there's, a, there's a neighborhood close to where Jenny and I lived when we lived in Chicago, and it's been identified as a neighborhood that's key, a key neighborhood to reach for Jesus and reach for Jesus' kingdom. And uh, there are two churches that are making an effort to reach this neighborhood. Church A is really famous. If I were to tell you the name, some of you would be like, oh, I've heard of that church. I've heard of that pastor. And every Thursday, they get on buses and they barrel in to the neighborhood and they do their ministry and they play games and there's a meal and there's some other stuff. And then at the end of the evening, they get back on the buses and they bus back. There's another church that's not famous at all. In fact, they've never been invited to speak at conferences. They're only a few hundred people, but about five years ago, they challenged the congregation. They wanted 30 people that would commit to moving into the apartment complex that was at the heart of that neighborhood. And do you know what? 50 people committed. 50. They wanted 30. They got 50. And so... Pastor Raymond, parents who snuggle in their kid's bed at night, church B, these are all incarnational things. Isn't that an interesting word? It's the word you only hear at Christmas, right? The incarnation. I mean, it sounds like something you buy in the store and mix with your coffee. The incarnation. Like, what is, what is the incarnation? What does it mean to be incarnational? Well, literally, it means enfleshing or becoming flesh. At Christmas, the eternal Son of God assumed human nature without ceasing to be God. That's the theology part of it. It just means that God shares our human frame. God participates in our human limitations. God enters into our world. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, The word became flesh and blood. 
and moved into the neighborhood. That's what happened at Christmas. God moved into the neighborhood. So just like Pastor Raymond, just like parents who snuggle in bed at night, just like Church B from Chicagoland, God entered our world, not just to enter our world for no reason, he entered our world to be with us. Why does a parent get in bed with their kid at night? To be with their son or their daughter. Why did Raymond come to the park to be with me? Why did God move into the neighborhood to be with us? And this is huge. This is huge. This is a radical idea. In the Old Testament, God appeared to Abraham as a smoking furnace. Uh, he appeared to Israel as a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. He appeared to Job as a hurricane. Moses is told, look, you can't look at me. You can't see me. I'll pass, but, you know, cover your eyes. You can't see anything but me but the tail end because you'll die if you even look at me. And so God's people, what do they do? They build a tent and a tabernacle to house God, as if you can house God, right? And so they build this tent and this tabernacle, and once a year, one person, the high priest, can go into the most inner part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And you know what they gotta do? They gotta tie a rope to the guy's ankle just in case he's struck dead. That God, that unapproachable God, becomes a baby, that God. Not just any God, the God of the Old Testament becomes a baby. The thing about a baby is, right, you can pick up a baby. Babies can't, babies can't, uh, they can squirm, but they have no choice whether you pick them up or not, right? A baby's helpless. So the God who made everything, that God, the God of the universe, the all-powerful God, became utterly and completely helpless, that God at Christmas. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter one because there's something really important I want you to get today. Matthew chapter one. This is a very, very important idea and truth that far too many Christians just abandon and it's this idea that God is with us. In Matthew, Matthew in the first chapter, he, it's all those begats, begat this, so-and-so, begat that, you know. And Matthew's basically saying, look, this Jesus, this Jesus is the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, he's the son of God. And then we get to the part of the story where Mary and Joseph are about to have this baby. Verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But the marriage took place while she was still a virgin. Uh, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. This, this betrothal part is not like we do engagements today, okay? Engagements today are not like they were in the first century. So uh, Micah and Bethany recently got married. So I'll pick on them for a moment. If you, if you had done this in the first century, the way it would have worked is that there would have been a betrothal. And the first part would have started, Micah, when you were around 13. Your parents, Paul and Janice, would have looked around and they would have said, you know, that Taylor girl, we like her, we like their family. 
And you know what? And they would, talk to, they would have talked to Mr. and Mrs. Taylor, and they would have kind of come to an agreement. Yes, Micah and Bethany, they're going to get married around when you were 13. And you would know this at 13. That's the first part, choosing the spouse part. The second part, as it got around the age of 18, 19, when you would marry, uh, there would be a year process leading up to the wedding. And at the beginning of that year, you, you, the two families would sit down and write out the contract and make the arrangements for the, the marriage. Uh, the groom's family, that would be Mr. and Mrs. Huber, would pay money to Mrs. M Mr. and Mrs. Taylor. They're, that's the bride price. Uh, Mr. Taylor would then give a gift to either his daughter or to the son-in-law, future son-in-law. And and then the groom, Micah, all this time that you had been working and apprenticing from age 13 to age 18, you would have been saving a huge chunk of that, and then that would be a gift to your betrothed, the sign of your commitment. This is where Mary and Joseph are in their betrothal. They're in this, first, they're in this period of the year prior to the wedding, but they're not to the wedding yet. See, at the wedding, the wedding would last a whole week, and on the very first night, the bride and groom would be given a room to themselves to do the deed. If you don't know what that is, kids, ask your parents, okay? And so after the, after the couple did the deed, they would have to produce a cloth because um, every woman who's not had sexual intercourse has something called a hymen that typically breaks the first time of uh, sexual intercourse. And so it creates some blood and some other things. And so they, this cloth would be in the room with the couple and they'd wanna make sure that blood was there to produce to the parents so that Mr. and Mrs. Taylor and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Huber could know, oh, okay, everything's on the up and up, we're good, this is good. Mary and Joseph aren't to that part yet. And what's happened? Mary is what? Oh, oh, we have a twist in the story. We have a twist. Verse 19. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Joseph finds out at a time where she's not yet showing, okay? Early in the pregnancy, Joseph has two options. Option one is a public divorce. Uh, everybody knows it hits the fan big time. There's a good chance that some fanatics are gonna wanna stone her to death, and if she escapes that, she will be disgraced the rest of her life. Option two is to quietly divorce her. Remember, this is during the betrothal period, so it would just take two or three witnesses, they'd all sign off on it, and then Mary would go off and probably never come back. But at least she might have a shot at a life. And Joseph decides he's going to do this second thing. Does Joseph care about this woman? And Joseph, like any man, hearing that his fiancée, his betrothed, is pregnant, is going to think what? You are a cheater. How could you? How could you do that to us? Okay? Well, the plot thickens more. An angel of the Lord appears. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she'll have a son, and you're going to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Every time an angel appears in the Bible, the first things out of their mouth are what? Don't be afraid. But here, here it's a little different. Here it's qualified. Don't be afraid to marry her. I know what everybody's going to think. I know what everybody's going to say, Joseph. I know how they're going to judge you, how they're going to judge her. I know. Marry her anyway. I know what you're thinking. Marry her anyway. This is of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the first century, Jesus was a very popular name. Did you know that? Before Jesus began his public teaching, there were already two Jesuses who had led revolts against Rome. Two of them. <laughs> Kill Caesar. Oh, we're following you, Jesus. And then Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene and says, turn the other cheek and all that other stuff, right? Okay, so, so Jesus was a popular name because they were expecting this deliverer that would throw off Roman occupation. And it was very common for parents to name their son, a son, Jesus, as a kind of a, our deliverer is coming. You wait, Caesar. What does the angel say? Oh, you're going to name him Jesus. Why? He'll save his people from their sins. He's not going to be the deliverer you think he's going to be. But he's the one. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, look, the virgin will conceive a child, she'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is from Isaiah 7. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This sign given to Ahaz as an indicator of the deliverance of Israel is pointing to something greater. It's pointing to Jesus. One day, the messianic age will come, the age of Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a title. Amano meaning with us, and El, a, a Hebrew short for God, the with us God, not the near us God, not the somewhere in the zip code God, not the in, down in Mexico when you're here in the United States God, the with us God, the with us in our joys and sorrows God, the with us in our sickness and health God, the with us in our finances God, the with us in our relationship God, the with us when we're on 27 God, that God is with us, he is with us. What I have found is that circumstances in my life are not an accurate reading of God's presence in my life. If you don't believe me, go back to the book of Genesis and read the story of Joseph. At every twist and turn, the writer puts in this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Because going through his life and his circumstances, you would not necessarily conclude that. So what does Joseph, the betrothed of Mary, do with this news? Well, that's verses 25 and following, 24 and following. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. In other words, straight to the wedding. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. So after the angel visits, Joseph goes straight to the wedding, only there's no room 
and no blood-stained cloth. What does everybody conclude at this point, right? Everybody knows somebody or somebody's, plural, have been unfaithful. That's what they conclude. Now, Jewish, Greek, and Roman law were clear. If your wife was a cheater, divorce her. A man who kept an unfaithful wife was looked upon as being stupid and weak. There was strong forces to divorce a cheating wife. Is it sexist and unfair? Oh, absolutely. And that's how it rolled in the first century. I really believe that by Joseph marrying her, in a sense, what he's saying to everyone is, I did it. Now, he didn't. He didn't do that. Mary was pregnant by other means. Joseph had nothing to do with it. And yet, he's willing to let everyone think. Because of the two options, the divorce option is what anyone do, would do for a betrothed who's cheated on you. If you couldn't wait until the wedding night and you're really the father, then you just go ahead and marry, right? And that's what Joseph does, which is why in verse 19, the Bible says Joseph was a righteous man. A righteous man does what's right. And Joseph lived up to that. Of all the twists and turns in this story, is God with Mary? Is God with Mary? Yes. Is God with Joseph? Yes. You wouldn't suspect it. You wouldn't notice it following all the little parts of how this unfolds, the coming of God into Bethlehem. Let me ask a question. Do you know the with us God? Do you know that God is with you? I mean, I'm not talking about head knowledge. I'm not talking about, well, Max, I know you got faith, or other people have faith. Or my, you know, my aunt and Matilda, man, she knows that God's with her. She's crazy. Do you know the with us God? In order to really experience this, I want to suggest some things. The with us God, if, if you want to know the with us God, it's going to take some communication. And this is from Tim Keller, by the way. This isn't even my advice. This is a Presbyterian tell you, you, you need to dial in the Lord. He says, communication. There's the prayer part. Many of us have been praying for a lot of things in the last little bit. Prayer is two ways. It's what we say to God, and it's what God says to us. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. The second part is a deep acquaintance of the Bible. I know that pastors love to stand up and say, read your Bible. And the reason we say that is because it's so hard to trust and obey if you never, ever, ever read what's in this book. In, 19, in 1989, the year after I did that stint as a roofer, uh, Jenny and I couldn't take being apart so bad that we wrote each other like 100 plus letters over the course of the summer. I have a box and it's a stack this high. What if every time I got the letter, I simply put it in the box and never opened it or read it? And what if at the end of the summer, all those letters were neatly tied with a bow and in this box and I put it in the bottom of my closet and if friends came to me and said, well, didn't you read any of Jenny's letters? And I were to say to you, well, her mom tells me she loves me. 
I mean, that, that's enough, isn't it? Wouldn't you think I was a little bit crazy? <laughs> I hope you would. <laughs> if not, counselors are standing by, <laughs> okay? Uh, I can't remember his name, but he, he refer, uh, I think it's Larry Crab, Crabtree. He refers to this as 66 love letters from God, this book, the Bible. So intake, there's no substitute for it. And then, so there's the communication part. Don't abandon the communication part. Communal means a grace. Being here today is huge. Don't give up on that. Don't give up on that. Worship, prayer, baptisms, communion, and the gathered church. The gathered church. In this room, in this room are people who have had all the joys and sorrows and twists and turns of life and who've had to trust God, just like Mary and Joseph, just like all of the people recorded in this book, and just like all of the people recorded in this book, they haven't done it perfectly or flawlessly, and they've needed help, but here they are. All right. The last thing that I want to suggest in terms of really experiencing this with us God is it's going to take some courage. I mean, I hate to have to tell you this, but there is not a single person of faith in this book who did not have to muster courage, not one. Abraham, Moses, uh, Rahab, I can't think of a single person, man or woman, in this book who to trust the with us God didn't have to muster courage. Let's just look at the uh, story of the nativity for a moment. The shepherds, the working men of the first century world, the guys who were known to be uh, teller of tall tales, the shepherds, not people that you would believe off the bat. And who does the angelic host appear to? The shepherds. Go into town, find the baby, and tell everyone what you have seen and heard. Man, there were these angels. Oh, yeah, Gary, is that like the five-and-a-half-foot carp you pulled out of the Sea of Galilee last week? Way to go, buddy. Right? They had to muster the courage to appear foolish. The wise men. The wise men. These are people who are, were learned, educated, intellectuals, leaders in their country. And trust me, they knew of the reputation of Herod the Great. King Herod had a reputation outside of Judea. He got involved in a, a revolt against Caesar that ended up turning out he smelled like a rose even though he was a traitor to Caesar. I'll have to tell you that story sometime. And he killed off sons, people in his family. He was tremendously paranoid and people knew this. And so these intellectual learned men get on their camels, their donkeys, whatever, and they travel to Jerusalem to go in to see who? Herod, and say, hey, so we've seen this star, the birth of the king, who is not you, and we're wondering if you could help us out to find this king who is not you. I'm sure this is all going to work out fine. If you could just point us in the right direction, that would be great. Thank you very much. The wise men. Um, Mary, mom, uh, dad, I'm, uh, I'm pregnant. It's not what you think. <laughs> it's not what you think. It's not Joseph. <laughs> Courage. And Joseph, he was, if, if in the period of betrothal, 
one of the parties, especially the, the, the bride part, cheated, and the husband were to divorce, all of the money that was put down would go to the offended party, all of it. And in that context, Joseph has the courage to marry her and let everybody think what they think the rest of his life. We know, Joseph, you couldn't wait. I've heard the stories. <laughs> Bless your heart. Let me ask a question, okay? A lot of times we'll ask uh, young people, what would you do, what would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? Well, let me ask that a different way. How would you live differently if you knew that God was with you? I'm not just talking about, well, yeah, no, God's with us. I'm talking about you knew that God was with you. You know, I, th I think some of us wouldn't mind so much being more generous with our time, with money and resources. We'd be willing to trust God for things. Some of us would be willing to finally forgive. Not, not saying letting them back into your life and all that other stuff. Boundaries are a different thing, but we'd be willing to say, you know what? You don't owe me anymore. Some of us would be willing, we get, we get these promptings, we feel like God wants us to do something and then we talk ourselves out of it. Oh, that couldn't have been God. <laughs> that wasn't God, God didn't say that. God, God didn't call me to do bad. God didn't want me to talk to that person. I mean, I'm not even an extrovert, right? We rationalize it away. We'd be more inclined to just say, yes, sir, God, I'll do that. If we knew that God was with us. I want to suggest to you this morning that Christmas is not just a prelude to Good Friday and Easter. It's something wonderfully miraculous in and of itself. The incarnation is really good news because Christmas says that God isn't just around the corner. God isn't, you know, 50 miles away. God doesn't need to hop on a plane to get where you are. God is right here, right now, with you, and if God is with you, that God of the universe is also for you.